Hi, and welcome to a Voices of Esalen Extended Edition. I'm Sam Stern. Today's episode is part of a series of panels presented at the Psychedelic Integration Conference at the Esalen Institute in the spring of 2019. What About the Kids was spearheaded by Marsha Rosenbaum, Director Emerita of the San Francisco Office of the Drug Policy Alliance and author of Kids, Drugs, and Drug Education, a Harm Reduction Approach. She's joined by Christy Panic, Chief of Psychiatric Services of the University Student Health Services at UC Berkeley, and Martin Lee, Co-Founder and Director of Project CBD. You'll also hear briefly from author and psychiatrist Julie Holland. the kids what about the kids I've been in drug policy reform now for about 25 years trying just in general to end the war on drugs and without fail each initiative has been met with that same question well that sounds okay but what about the kids What are the implications for kids? If we, for example, if we legalize marijuana, is that going to send the wrong message? Sending the wrong message. Is it going to open up markets for young people? So I, you know, I'm, I'm actually, um, frankly, weary of that question. That's what's like. Julie came in here and said, what about the kids? And I said, well, what about them? Um, So uh, my interest in the kids um, started when I had kids and in in general, uh, teenagers. And I talked about this a little in, in the afternoon session, but what happened was that my very precocious, very smart uh, daughter at, in fifth grade came home from school and announced to me, as she did, um, that she now knew everything there was to know about drugs. Now, at that point, I had spent a decade researching um, heroin. And uh, (laughs) so I I thought, well, uh, really, Annie? What she said to me was, uh, yes. I said, how? She says, Mom, I am a graduate of the D.A.R.E. program. Now, here's the thing. I had barely heard about the D.A.R.E. program at this point. And do you you all know what the D.A.R.E. program is? Drug Abuse Resistance Education began in 1983. And alongside Nancy Reagan's Just Say No. So uh, first off, you know, it kind of pissed me off because every extracurricular activity they did, which included going across the street for a field trip to the park, I had to sign a permission slip. Drug education? I I mean, it seems to me that I should have known about that, but I didn't. So I asked her what she knew. And what she did was she drew a picture on our uh, chalkboard in the kitchen, which we had so they could play school, of course. So visualize this. She draws a big circle. And she says to me, um, Mom, this is your brain. Okay, good. And then she does little circles inside the big circle. Says, now, Mom, these are your brain cells. 
And then she takes the eraser and erases half of this circle. And she says, Mom, you may not know this. <laughs> it's so Annie, it, still. Um, <laughs> um, but when you smoke marijuana, half of your brain cells get erased forever. I mean, what is this thing? What is this drug education thing they're getting? And um, so I started to learn about it. And the more I learned, the more frightened I got because I, I saw what kind of information was being taught. And I knew particularly on the issue of marijuana that it was primarily misinformation on so many levels. And what I also knew was that, because I'd been interviewing women who were struggling with heroin, that they would talk about their, the education they had gotten, and they would say a story over and over and over again, that I said, how, how, how did you get into heroin? Well, I, I had drug education, but they told us that um, if we smoked marijuana, we would get addicted right away. And she says, and then the next week they told us that if we used heroin, we would get addicted. And she says, well, nobody got addicted to marijuana, so we thought the entire message must be BS. So they, they throw it out. So, so my job then, I felt, as a parent and a drug policy reformer, was to try and change the way we do drug education in this country. I wanted something. I w- wanted something that looked much more like comprehensive sex education. Um, by that we mean it, abstinence is the best choice. It's like a mantra. Abstinence, abstinence is the best choice. But if you do, here's what you need to know and do to be safe. And for me, as a parent, safety was my bottom line. I just I wanted them to get through this. So okay, so I start, uh, I wrote about drug education, I critiqued it, I, I wanted to get this message out and then I started writing a, this, a series of these booklets, Safety First, a reality-based approach to teens and drugs. And uh, this is the sixth edition, so this is a while ago, That's, and now we're coming out with the seventh edition this next month. This is information we want to get out there. And I thought, okay, how do I get this basically harm reduction information out to the greatest number of parents that I can? I hire a, a consultant to help with this. And let's go with the largest parent organization in the world. It's the PTA. So, okay, and California, where I live, has the the national PTA has 5 million members, and California has 1 million members, 1 million. Now it's down to about 800,000. So we focused on California. Then the next steps were how to get this information into the hands of the PTA and get them to distribute the, this booklet to their membership. So I went through a series of auditions. I, th- I, thought, I felt like they were auditions where I had to 
straddle a line and no possible way was I revealing my own drug use. Not a chance. And of course, I look so conventional that it, it wasn't that hard. You know, they it wasn't everyone assuming. After, you know, uh, many, many meetings and a couple, all it takes, I've learned, is a couple of enlightened leaders in any organization that have some power. And there we are. And so the PTA starts distributing this booklet to its memberships through through their own local office. And I gave countless presentations to PTAs and all the while just be, I, I, I would never have brought Rick, Do, my friend Rick Doblin with me. No way. Um, also, so we now have about 15 years of the PTA just kind of listening to this. I keep going to their conferences. I'm keynoting. This is really schizophrenic. So here I am in a psychedelic conference retreat this month, where next month is the California State PTA annual convention, doing a keynote there. Very different kinds of uh, speeches. <laughs> but, um, but where we went and where I, what I want to share, really, is that finally, finally, we have created a, a, a real curriculum because the question was, okay, this is nice information for parents, helping them to understand what's going on and hopefully to calm down because um, there is so much fear and misinformation out there. But so we created a curriculum and we're rolling it out. And I wanted to just mention the psychedelic lesson in the curriculum because it's got lessons in marijuana and alcohol and stimulants and psychedelics and vaping and uh, tobacco. The psychedelic lesson is, I, I think you'll, you'll probably find it familiar. It's all about Norman Zinberg's drug set and setting. It's about what psychedelics do. There's, a, there's some brain, brain information, but we try and keep it simple. I mean, that stuff is complex and hard to understand. And anyway, the whole subject of the brain is just omnipresent anyway. And teaching kids to think about their mindset when they go into a drug experience. Again, over and over again, abstinence is your best choice, but if you do. So the, the drug itself, what it is, what it does, the headspace, and the importance of the setting that they're in and, and to, in order to be safe. So that's what we're rolling out right now. And uh, yeah, I'm going to just leave it at that. That's today. Thank you. Thank you. And Christy Panic, who we haven't heard um, much from in the panels, but she is here really to share her expertise. Uh, she is the head of psychiatry at UC Berkeley. She is a, um, a doctor in the MAPS Phase Three studies and a mentor at CIIS. So as Dream said, I work at um, the Student Health Center at UC Berkeley, and I'm in, in the psychiatry department, head of psychiatry, which is within the counseling center. And I work with 
students who really have lost their way, um, many, many of whom ha are really crashing and burning by the time they come to see us. And I also work with others within the health center and on campus to try and figure out ways to really respond to what has aptly been called the college mental health crisis. So what is this college mental health crisis? So college counseling centers are really being overwhelmed by students everywhere, here in the United States as well as worldwide. Um, the number of students has just skyrocketed in the last number of years. So when I first started working at UC Berkeley 12 years ago, we saw 10% of the population. And this past year, we saw 17% of the 42,000 students on campus. So a, a whopping increase. More students are coming in with more acute problems. We're seeing more students with psychosis year after year. We're seeing more students with overwhelming anxiety, a serious suicidal ideation, more and more year after year. We're doing more, hospitali more hospitalizations year after year. Um, so much so that there's, um, there's an organization within New York that aims to ease the transition for students from the counseling center to the hospital and then back to the counseling center. So this is, this is a good thing, um, but it just get, shows you a little bit of the lay of the land. Another indication of the crisis is um, the number of medications that we're prescribing to students. In the US in the last um, 10 years, we've doubled the number of medications that we're prescribing for mental health diagnoses. Why are so many students coming in for help? Students have a lot of anxiety about finding jobs. Indeed, they're having more trouble finding jobs. And then the jobs that they're getting are often unrelated to their degree. Students have decreased stigma about mental health these days versus about 10 years ago and more. Um, and while this is a good thing, it means that more are coming through our doors. Um, more students are coming to college already having been diagnosed with mental health disorders versus 10 years ago. Um, and we're seeing more students because of this visceral sense of instability many of us are feeling from uh, the, the growing income disparity, from the current political climate. And pharmaceutical companies have actually done a really excellent job at selling their products and promoting mental health disorders. So what do I recommend to respond to this crisis? Meditation, not medication, which is, is partly true. Um, I do say that a lot of the time, but not all the time. I do prescribe medication as well. Um, there's a growing movement in, in wellness in, on college campuses, and I think everywhere. There are wellness centers popping up all over the place on, in, the, in the nation on college campuses. There are a number of student-run initiatives for wellness where students get together and they, they 
They have um, chill circles. They've gotten together to fund massage chairs, um, have yoga and exercise groups. And then we have a number of people within the Student Health Center um, who are going on campus and doing outreach with students in terms of wellness programs. Um, so I think this is a really important thing to keep working on and keep growing. And with every student that I talk with, I talk with them about the basic big three that we're all aware of, diet, sleep, and exercise, which I think are really important to keep talking about because it's e really easy to forget those things when um, you're really stressed out about just getting everything done that you have to get done. Um, and I think sleep is a really huge issue. And it can feel impossible to shift for many students, but it can have enormous impact on mood and cognition. So I think that our world and our students are just obsessed with everything going really fast, you know, caffeine-fueled, productivity-obsessed world. Um, it's hard to to take the time to work through things, I think, for a lot of our students, or to think that they just want to move through things quickly. Um, so I think in working with that mindset is really important. Too often, not all the time, but too often students want medications as their sole treatment because they're thought to be fast, but that's not necessarily true. I've been shocked at how many times students come in having been on benzodiazepines for years before ever entering college. At our campus within the psychiatry service, we don't treat students with medications unless they agree to be in ongoing uh, psychotherapy at the same time. So a couple of things about mindfulness and meditation. If we were to teach these practices early as part of the school curriculum, we'd be gifting our kids and really our society with some awesome skills like better attention, better emotional regulation, um, greater compassion. And I'm a huge fan of meditation as a powerful practice and completely agree with those who've talked about meditation as a perfect tool not only for integration of psychedelic work, but also preparation and staying grounded within a psychedelic session. So at this conference, we've been talking about transforming the culture and how psychedelics can contribute to that. I'm not thinking that we'll be doing psychedelic-assisted therapies at the College Counseling Center anytime soon, but I hope is that this rich sharing that we're doing here will lead to some ideas that I can take back and hopefully use in my work to try and come with better ideas to support our students. So to end, as a way to again honor our, bro our brother and my dear friend, Ralph Metzner, um, I'd like to offer to you um, some sage advice that he offered when people were having difficulties in difficult mind states. And it can be used anytime you're feeling lost or confused. So remember your intention. Remember your ancestors, your teachers, those who've come before you. Remember your ground. Stay connected to the earth. 
and remember your light. Let it show you the way. Thank you. Martin Lee, author of Acid Dreams, very interesting book. And more recently, Smoke Signals, an important book on the history of cannabis. Uh, he told me all about his interest in cannabinoids and CBD. Martin Lee speaks science. Uh, if you're looking for in, uh, scientifically correct information and the latest research about CBD, which is on fire right now, that's the place to look, projectcbd.org. Martin, it's great to have you here. Thank you. I, I took LSD for the first time when I was 14 years old. And I actually had, I took Sandoz LSD because there was a, 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 two buddies of mine who were both my age who had already done it once. Uh, one of their uncles was a psychiatrist and had some leftover Sandoz. By this time, 1968, it was already illegal. Um, but doctors had some supply left over. And I remember specifically the little yellow pills and each one was 25 mi micrograms. Uh, my friends took three, and I took two. So the experience wasn't like overwhelming shebang, you know, like it would be in years ahead, but, but it was something. And, and it was a, a very interesting, strange day. But I found myself at the end of the trip, uh, which wasn't a vivid kaleidoscopic trip. It was outdoors during the day. My eyes were open. It just wasn't, you know, it wasn't like we associate necessarily with, with LSD. But I remember looking in the mirror for a while and like, oh, in the mirror, you know, it's not where you want to be when you're high on LSD. <laughs> but I'm looking at the mirror and I, I literally had this conversation with myself and I said, Martin, you're too young for this. You know? <laughs> so I waited a year uh, and then I started actually doing uh, mescaline and LSD in earnest. And by in earnest, I, I never did it lots and lots, you know, two, two, three dozen times, I don't know, you know, over the years. Um, well, I guess I'm, a, I'm an acid casualty. That's what it means. I don't know. The interesting thing is, uh, well, it really sort of it, it perked my intellectual interest. Before then, I would never read books, really, on my own as a thing to do. I might, uh, maybe I'd read about a baseball player or somebody famous, you know, but it was just not part of what I was really interested in. I became a passionate reader because I want to find out what... What happened? You know, after I really did have a full bone trip, to me that was a tremendously intellectually curious and amazing event. I, so I, I became very intellectually curious, and I, and I attribute it in part to, to that experience. And I guess you could say it led me to start, you know, an interest in writing, and now became a professional writer. And one of the things I've been writing about is drugs, uh, social history of LSD, uh, and with acid dreams and smoke signals, social history of cannabis. You know, with cannabis and, and even with the work with Project CBD, you know, part of it involves dealing with uh, responding to this ongoing sort of reefer madness light that we, or it kind of comes in, <laughs> ebbs and flows, but we, we seem to have a resurgence of reefer madness now with this book, Tell Your Children, which incidentally was the original title of the movie Reefer Madness. I really think in terms of the culture war overall, you know, to the extent that marijuana was on one side, that side won on this issue. We, we won. We, we prevailed culturally about cannabis. I, I don't think most people take it seriously as a, you know, terribly dangerous drug and so forth. But still, you, you, there's this reefer madness light that persists. And, and you know, even at the conference that came up, someone is asking about, well, if 
it's so strong now that there's so much THC in the weed and kids are smoking it. What that means, they're, they're more likely they'll become psychotic. And the, the fact of the matter is you, 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 there is data that shows a correlation, but what it doesn't show is any causation. If a, if a kid is compelled to, to uh, smoke pot incessantly and, and to the point where it's interfering with his schoolwork or maybe his friendships or maybe it's because his friends are doing it too, but whatever it is, it's discordant with the, with this, the mores of, of what you're supposed to do in high school. Whatever is going on there that compels a kid to do that, to, to have a, a less than healthy relationship with a substance like, like cannabis, that's the problem. It's not cannabis itself. And it, it, so a, a person could be compelled to use cannabis, and whatever it is that's driving them, those stresses, those tensions, those trauma, maybe later on in life th that person will be more likely to, uh, to have serious mental health issues than, than someone else who might be smoking, let's say. You know, but so you, you, there's an inversion that goes on here, and it's continually like that. There was one report that came out a few years ago. You smoke marijuana, your IQ goes down as a kid. Total bullshit. They didn't account for any kids who are also uh, using other drugs in this study. You know, there are many things that will lower a, a, a child's IQ. Missing a meal, being hungry, you know, growing up in a deprived environment in terms of what the resources are. Those things are bad diet. They definitely affect a, a child's IQ. Using cannabis does not. It, so it, it, we, f we could spend all our time at Project CBD sort of responding to the nonsense that continues to percolate. Uh, but that's really not our main focus. But sometimes you just have to. Uh, and and uh, but I can tell you that science is on our side. And when I do, I do a lot of public speaking. And when I speak about cannabis, oftentimes there's a, a grown up in the room, a, a, a parent who, who will say, "Well, what am I? I know so and so, or my kid is doing this all the time." Da, da, da. And, you know, I feel for uh, that situation. And, and typically, what I say, I said. You know, if I were you, I would get down on your hands and knees and thank the Lord that your child is abusing marijuana and not something else that's actually will harm them in, in a physiological way, in an emotional way. I mean, cannabis might not help a kid, but it's not going to hurt them. It might sort of reinforce being in a rut, but it won't put them in the rut. And then I say, and why after you thank the Lord, <laughs> then get up off your knees and try to figure what is going on in the child's life that's off, that, that, that drives them to... Uh, to use uh, cannabis incessantly, uh, and you know what can they do to uh, what can you do to to help move them off that trajectory? And, and sometimes it's it's tough. You know, a lot of kids who are ADHD, even undiagnosed, gravitate toward cannabis. It's, it happens to be very good for ADHD. Uh, you know, much healthier than Ritalin. Um, so I didn't mean to be flip about, 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 you know, taking LSD when I was 14 years old. But my kids just, my, you know, they asked me when they were growing up, when dad, when did you first, you know, they they see what I write about. And I'm like, you know, are they, Dad, can you tell me, what is it like? You know, I don't, deny, I don't deny to the kids that I've taken LSD. That would be, they'd see through that one. And like, and I would describe them, well, you know, it's like you've seen Van Gogh paintings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you saw all the swirly stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, imagine you were inside a Van Gogh painting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was sort of inside you at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And, and that says, well, that's kind of like what it is, you know. But, but it's like, you know, well, when did you, how old were you when you first took a dad? Well, that's not important for you to know. <laughs> and I never told them still to this day. And, 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 uh, but anyway, you know, the, the NIDA has statistics of addiction for nine or 10%, one out of 10, one out of 11 people who smoke weed will become addicted. That's a ridiculously high number. And it actually reflects that any, any kid forced into rehab when they're given a choice, jail or rehab, duh, 
you know, but anybody who goes to rehab is considered then a marijuana addict in terms of these statistics. Um, and, and, they, and some of these kids haven't touched weed for a few months by the time they go into rehab to do their thing. You know, so we have a distorted picture, but there is also that core one or two percent that I don't like the idea of addictive personality, but sort of, you, you know what I mean? They, 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 they would get messed up with anything. And, and children today, I think, are, are, are dealing with inordinate stresses in our society. You know, and it's coming of age in the 60s or 70s. There was still a sense of hope that we could have a future, but now it's the ice caps are melting, you know, and 80,000 synthetic chemicals in the environment. All the kinds of stressors that, that, that you know, I think that's why a lot of kids end up uh, reaching for weed. So we live in a tiny town, and the, and the person who teaches my kids in the middle school and high school about drugs and health is the basketball coach. Um, and I cannot believe the misinformation he's... Every time my kids come home, they're like, you're, sit down, you're going to freak out when you hear this. You know, he told my daughter's class that a woman could pull out her IUD whenever she didn't want to use it. Like, just, like, dangerous, crazy stuff. And, like, just such terrible drug misinformation. But my daughter came home once with a pamphlet that she got in health class, and when I... Just full of misinformation, and when I looked to see where the pamphlet came from, it was a weird company, I started to Google it, it was a Scientologist. Have you heard about this? These pamphlets that kids are getting are from Scientology? Like, how can we get your program in my school instead of a Scientology program in my school? Well, you, you could distribute my booklet to your school. That would be a start. But yeah, Scientology has crept in. San Francisco, it was in there, and then we, f we figured it out and just did a hit piece on them. And, well, it, you know, it is San Francisco after all, but they just yanked it. Uh, you know, the, the including, it, it, the conversations are, if you, if you can pull them off, I think are really critical with kids. If, if, uh, if parents can get their kids to feel comfortable opening up and asking them for questions, except the one question, I get this question every single workshop it's the only one that's consistent with you know basically PTA and that is I don't know what to tell my child about my own past and now in California it's legal and present drug use and they really struggle with that they're so everybody seems to be so worried about opening up and really communicating and sharing that it, that's, I think, the, the, the greatest of challenges, you know, and he's like, I don't know what to say. And I always say the same thing. Hey, well, you can choose not to tell your child that you smoke or smoked pot, but here's what happened to me. And that is, and this did happen to me. So I was kind of thinking, no, I don't, I don't, maybe I don't need to share, and I certainly didn't need to share all the other stuff. Um, but then, if you have a sibling, you know, <laughs> I do have a younger sister, and she just, I'm sitting there at Thanksgiving dinner, and I'm listening to her regaling my, you know, my telling my children, you think your mother's so straight? Really? Let me tell you what she did. And I listen to that, and I, that's, my, that's my message. You're going to get busted, and then you're really in trouble.
Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. The Psychedelic Integration Conference was produced by Alan Bediner in conjunction with Dream Mulek. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to subscribe, rate us, and review. You can also find all of our episodes at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. Thank you.